it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, September 15th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show, live from L.A. for the last time this week back home tomorrow. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day. We air between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. If you can't listen during that time period, then we've got the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, same handle, at GuyBensonShow. Here's the lineup today, I should mention briefly. Since I am a Fox News contributor, I'll be on the Business Network, FBN, with Dagan McDowell a little bit later on. Looking forward to that. But here on the radio side, Katie Pavlich will be joining us this hour. Cannot wait to talk to her about quite a few things, including our lead story, which we'll get to here in a moment. Ted Budd, congressman from North Carolina, running for the U.S. Senate in that state. He will join us again in our next hour. And then Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg will be here in our final hour. I want to ask him about some very dramatic developments in Ukraine. Really good progress by the Ukrainians and some devastating setbacks for the Russians. We'll get the general's reaction and analysis on that. Plus, what is the problem right now with U.S. military recruiting? Falling woefully short of recruiting targets, what is happening? We will ask him about that. But as we begin today, I scarcely know where to begin. I want to talk about immigration. I want to talk what is uh, about what is happening in some of these sanctuary areas in blue states and the total meltdown ensuing from Democratic politicians and media pundits who have had absolutely nothing to say about the border crisis until they figure out or feel like they have some kind of an excuse to rage and attack Republicans. I mean, we are seeing finally a bunch of discussion of the border crisis for the first time in many months. In fact, the last time the border crisis got this much mainstream scrutiny and attention was back when the Biden administration was lying about the Border Patrol in the whipping smear of those Haitian immigrants. Remember that in Del Rio? That big lie about border agents. They were on horseback with these whips just terrifying and abusing these these migrants that wasn't true and yet that went everywhere the media suddenly got interested because it was an opportunity to talk about the border in a way in which we were the bad guys and law enforcement was the problem and biden was all in high dudgeon his administration was saying there's going to be consequences held to pay they're going to be held to account it was all based on a fabrication Now, the crisis has only gotten worse since then. On and on it has gone, raging month after month, horrors happening at the southern border, people drowning, crime, murder, widespread abuse of women and girls being trafficked by the cartels, 
and not a peep from any of these people. Until just the last couple weeks when they've had a Republican governor to be mad at, Greg Abbott in Texas, and now a Republican governor that they hate even more, Ron DeSantis getting in on the action, so they are big, big mad. Not at the cartels. Not about the coyotes. Not about the Biden administration and their incentivizing of all of this through their failed policies. No, they're mad that Republican governors are sending small pockets of illegal immigrants into very progressive jurisdictions. These are the types of places, sanctuary cities, for example, and elsewhere, where people put up signs, hate has no home here, everyone is welcome, right? In, in this house, we believe that love is love and no human is illegal and you know the sign, right? How dare Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis send a handful of illegal immigrants to those people's backyard? That's the complaint. And they're screaming about how cruel and inhumane it is, and it's authoritarian, and it's kind of like Hitler. The latest example is DeSantis flying two plane loads of illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, the very Tony Shishi Island off of Cape Cod, filled with left-wing millionaires. The people who would very much plant that little virtue signal sign in their front yard, but when it's time to actually put that into practice. Oh, look at this evil Ron DeSantis and what he's up to. I tweeted this last night with all these people reaching for the smelling salts, suddenly rediscovering the border crisis, but only in the context of being angry at Republicans. I tweeted not a peep about the raging border crisis with its cartel enriching chaos and death directly incentivized by their policies until bad Greg and bad Ron send a handful of the illegal migrants to their deep blue enclaves. Then the morality howling begins. Ridiculous, but revealing. So DeSantis sends these two plane loads of illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, which is immediately declared a state of emergency. It's a crisis. Illinois declared a state of emergency because of the migrants coming from Texas. Again, just like the tiniest drop in the bucket of what border communities have been deluged with now for years, especially these last two years. Then like a little whiff of the problem in these places that beat their chests about their sanctuary policies and they lose their minds. They're very angry. They're seething. They're raging. They're indignant. They're pounding the table, but they don't actually have a point. It's totally incoherent. How is any of this cruel? How is sending illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities cruel? They should be welcomed with open arms. And if it's cruel to do what these Republican governors are doing, why is it not cruel when the Biden administration puts people on buses and airplanes and flies them all over the country? How is it not cruel for them to have the policies in place that incentivize this type of behavior in the first place? The answer is they don't actually believe anything that they're saying. They know who the villains are. They know who is bad. And it's all political. 
They don't feel like they need to be coherent. They don't need to feel like they actually have any sort of actual point to make. They just need to get really angry at the right types of people and express their frustration. But I think that they are absolutely owning themselves with all of this. And credit to Greg Abbott. He came up with this. This horrible, cruel, inhumane stunt of taking illegal immigrants, flooding the southern border, and sending them to places that support illegal immigration? Huh. Credit to him. Credit to others for doing it. It is working. The tantrums and conniption fits are drawing attention to the problem without an actual sound point that they're making that actually justifies or undergirds this fury that they're expressing for political reasons at partisan opponents. I saw Chris Hayes at MSNBC talking about how just awful and dreadful and mean-spirited it is for the state of Florida and Ron DeSantis to, quote, fling people around for political reasons. You know what? I would love to be flung to Martha's Vineyard. Can someone please fling me to Martha's Vineyard? It makes no sense. They have nothing. They know they don't like it. They know that the problem that they have supported or ignored is being highlighted in a way that is painful and embarrassing and problematic. And by the way, probably very frustrating and angering to many American voters. And they are just trying to figure out how to channel that anger in a way. And the only way they know how is to direct it at Republicans no matter what. That's what they're doing. They are beclowning themselves. And they are making the Republicans point for them. Talk about impotent rage. That is exactly what this is. So DeSantis was asked about this move. It was called what I saw Charlie Crist came out calling it inhumane. I would love for some of these Democrats to get pushed with like one or two follow up questions. What do you mean it's inhumane? Why is it inhumane? Why is it okay at the border? Why is it okay for the people of Arizona? Why is it okay for the people of Texas? Why is that humane? Why have you kept your mouth shut for the last year on all of this stuff? But this, this is inhumane? Explain that. Really try to explore their thinking. I think you'll discover that it's not terribly deep. I'm not optimistic that many journalists are going to ask those types of questions, but they should. Anyway, DeSantis asked about it, and he's like just fish in a barrel. Cut 11. Let's listen. People visiting here, we were the number one state for foreign tourism by far in 2021 for all U.S. tourism. But even people across the border, there's a lot that say they want to come to Florida. So our message is, you know, we're not a sanctuary state. Uh, we don't have benefits or, or any of that. There are some sanctuary jurisdictions, and that would be better. Now, what would be the best is for Biden to do his damn job and secure the border. How can you argue with that? Here in Florida, we're not a sanctuary state. There are other places around the country that pride themselves supposedly on being sanctuary jurisdictions. Go there. Oh, how cruel. How cruel. And maybe Biden should do his damn job and secure the border. That is the core issue that they do not want to talk about. DeSantis went on, cut 12. 
beating their chests when Trump was president, saying they were so proud to be sanctuary jurisdictions, saying how bad it was to have a secure border. The minute even a small fraction of what those border towns deal with every day is brought to their front door, they all of a sudden go berserk, and they're so upset that this is happening. And it just shows you, you know, their virtue signaling is a fraud, okay? They, they are supporting policies that are just, frankly, indefensible. It is not defensible for a superpower to not have any control over the territory of its country, over the borders of its country. And he inherited a situation where you didn't have this happening. And yes, we needed to build the wall. There was more that we needed to do. He reversed the Trump policies, knowing what would end up happening. And you know, one of the reasons why we want to transport, because we obviously, it's expensive if people are coming here. You got to, it taxes social services and all these other things. I mean, yes. Right on every single count, this is a damning indictment of the policies of the Biden administration that they have enacted willfully and deliberately. And when even a fraction of the ramifications are visited upon the people who support those policies, they lose it. They go berserk in DeSantis's words. And so you can sit there and say, well, that's just Hitler evil stuff, which is what they say all the time about everything. It doesn't make any sense. It does not make any sense. Which is why I think the rage is so ridiculous and so unfocused and and sort of like vague. They know it's bad. They know they don't like it. But don't make them think too hard about why. Meanwhile, Texas... And the governor down there, Greg Abbott, he has sent a few more busloads of illegal immigrants to Washington, D.C., and he dropped them directly outside the vice president's mansion, the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. Why? Well, the vice president was just on national television on Sunday. We played the clip saying twice that the border is secure. That's what she said. And so what Texas did is, oh, okay, huh, that's interesting, Madam Vice President, borders are, who's never down here. Uh, Here is just, you know, a a couple more buses coming directly to your doorstep from that very secure border that you keep talking about. Vice President asserting on TV, as the administration does over and over again, the border is closed, the border is secure. Well, Griff Jenkins, our colleague here at Fox News, was there with cameras rolling as these illegal immigrants arrived at the vice president's house. And he asked the question of these immigrants... I think they found one that spoke English. Is the border secure? Just listen to what this illegal immigrant had to say, cut 13. He brought his entire family from Venezuela, and he intends to ultimately try and go to see his aunt who lives in New York, he told me. And I asked him about whether or not he agreed with Vice President Harris's comment that the border was closed. Here's what he had to say. Listen. Everybody believes that the border is open. It's open because we enter. We come in. Free. It's open for you to come illegally, right? Illegally, yes, illegally. That's true. Because we sit on the news that everybody coming illegally. So we also do the same. I mean, it, speaks, it's, it, it makes the point itself. It speaks for itself. Just listen to this back to back. The vice president and then an illegal immigrant who arrived at her house today cut 14. 
We're going to have two million people cross this border for the first time ever. You're confident this border is secure? We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. And Vice President Harris uh, said that the border is closed. Is the border closed? Do you believe that the border is closed or is it open? It's open, not closed. The border is open. The border is open. Do you believe that all the migrants believe that the border is open? Yeah, everybody believes that the border is open. It's open because we enter, we come in, free. Everybody believes it's open. It is open because we came in. It's hard to argue with that, just like it's hard to argue with the points that Abbott and DeSantis are making. But boy, are they mad on the left because their failures are unavoidable. Deep down, they know it. We are nowhere close to done with this. What a performance today by the White House press secretary. I hate to pick on her, but a doozy. We'll get to all of that, plus Katie Pavlich, all ahead on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So the leadership in Martha's Vineyard has declared a humanitarian crisis now that a few dozen illegal immigrants have landed on the vineyard, where they've been flung there cruelly, in the words of an MSNBC host, <laughs> in Martha's Vineyard, where people actually pay quite a lot of money to be flung every summer, voluntarily. But anyway, it's a humanitarian crisis there. The National Guard has been called up in Illinois. What are, are they even at thousands yet that have arrived? I think it's still hundreds in Illinois. The governor there, Pritzker, yelling and screaming about Republicans, of course. Lori Lightfoot inveighing against the Republicans, then shipping off the illegal immigrants to the suburbs without their knowledge. <laughs> Just like extraordinary what they're doing here. I'm looking at some of the words being used. Elizabeth Warren calls this repulsive. Charlie Crist running against DeSantis, vile. The word that they keep using is inhumane. Again, I would love to hear reporters ask them to really have to explain why some of this stuff is so unconscionable, but all the underlying problems based on their party's policies just are are what? Compassionate? These people who have nothing to say ever about this crisis suddenly all piping up because they feel like it's a chance to dump on Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott. But again, I think that they are misreading this badly. Katie Pavlich is next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. Thrilled to welcome back Katie Pavlich, my friend, my colleague at BothTownHall.com and Fox News. Katie, good to have you here as always. Hello, Guy. Happy Friday Eve. Yes, we're getting there. And I just spent the first half hour talking about the migrant stuff and the absolute meltdown that we're seeing on the left. And I didn't even get to all of the material. So I hope that we can talk about it together. How does that sound? Uh, Sounds fantastic. Okay, so Corinne Jean-Pierre at the White House. And and I said this in the last segment. I, I don't love singling her out because she has a tough job. She is bad at it. I, I I don't know how else to put it. She is bad at the job. And part of that's her own uh, lack of talent in some ways. Some of it is just she is dealt a horrible hand that she has to try to defend. And she was attempting today and failing pretty miserably, asked about the border crisis and all of this stuff, because what the Democrats are, they're, they know they're very, very angry at Republicans. But when it comes to the underlying issues, they just don't have answers. So let's just listen, for example, to Cut 38. Let's start with Cut 38. This was just you know, a little while ago today. From the podium, take it away, KJP. So as we have said repeatedly, there is a, there's a process in place. Uh, we have had a process in place. There is a legal way of doing this. Um, and uh, for managing migrants, Republican governors interfering in that process and using migrants as political pawns is, uh, is shameful, is reckless, and just plain wrong. And remember, these are people who are fleeing communism, who are fleeing hardship. And if these governors truly care about uh, border security, they should ask Texas Governor Ted Cruz and Florida Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott why they voted against the president's request for record record funding for the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security is what she just called it, uh, while also talking about Senator, excuse me, Governor Ted Cruz. I guess he got a title <laughs> change there. Um, Remarkable. She says there's a process in place for dealing with the migrants. How is that process going, Katie? I think that's like the underlying, the fundamental point here. And then she's like, oh, they voted against Homeland Security funding. Uh, It wasn't going to security is the problem, I think. Well, also, it's amazing how they're trying to use these people are fleeing communism line, which shows you they're so desperate that they're now trying to use a Republican talking point against (laughs) Republicans. Um, It's not going well at all. I mean, two million people have crossed uh, over the past year and a half into this country as a result of Joe Biden's open border policies. Uh, You know, and it's interesting to watch, and I'm sure you've already said this, but, you know, Democrats have been voting for sanctuary cities for years. They have accused Republicans in the border states. They've accused border communities that have Democratic mayors of racism and xenophobia if they weren't willing to bear the brunt um, of this problem. I mean, I'm from Arizona. This is the same argument that I've been hearing my entire life about how, you know, places like Arizona have asked the federal government to reimburse them for illegal immigration, uh, and Democrats aren't you know, willing to do it because they think that it's a problem far away that they don't have to deal with. Now that it's come to Washington, D.C., now that it's at Martha's Vineyard, all of a sudden they're saying it's inhumane, that it's wrong, that it's a political ploy, as if what they've been doing is not a political ploy. Uh, and they act like this is, this is some kind of new idea. 
The Biden administration for a year and a half has been flying illegal immigrants to communities Mm -hmm. around the country in the middle of the night. The only difference is now that people like Governor Ron DeSantis and Governor Greg Abbott of Texas are flying people in the middle of the day to places like Martha's Vineyard and Washington, D.C., so the American people can see what's actually going on here and the White House is having a fit about it and and all of their excuses about how it's different because they're not using people as pawns <laughs> is absolutely amazing and also just the sheer gall to say it is inhumane to send 50 illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard yeah <laughs> when they have emboldened a trillion dollar smuggling cartel that is making more money off of human beings being moved across the border yep. than they are on drug smuggling is just so detached from reality and from the real humanity crisis that we've seen for a year and a half under this president, which is the worst in history, by the way. The numbers have never been this bad. And then they stand up today and say, the border's secure. And a Republican on border funding. I mean, it just is so amazing. I mean, it's insulting. It bears no resemblance to what's actually happening. They take no accountability, no responsibility for what they've actually done what their policies have wrought. And basically, it seems like for a lot of these people, their position is come on in, but don't come here. Stay down there. Right. And what right. also drives me crazy, and I've made this point a few it's times a already. point, by the way. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> doing uh, I mean, for it's, political reasons. it's all about politics. It is completely political to them. And this actually, the point I was about to make, it, it I think dovetails nicely. And I, I keep coming back to it because I think this is what bothers me the most. You and I were down, Katie. You and I were down at the border a couple months ago. We saw what was happening there with our own eyes. A lot of these yep. folks won't even go. They've been turning deliberately a blind eye to what's happening there. The crisis is worse than it has ever been. They deny it. They say the border is secure. They say that they're the compassionate, empathetic ones. They do not talk about the border at all except to sort of tacitly or explicitly approve what's happening down there and suggest that people who might be concerned about it are like racists or xenophobes, but Mm -hmm. they have nothing to say about it ever until law enforcement officials are falsely accused of whipping migrants. Then all of a sudden they they pay some attention for like a few minutes and they get really mad. Then it goes away for another, whatever, nine, ten months. And then you have an opportunity to yell at Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis. So now they're mad again. Now they're talking about it. They don't care at all about the crisis they care about scoring political points and to me that's what's actually repulsive and vile and all these words that they keep using to describe the actions and policies of these republican governors yeah no it's abhorrent and it's inhumane and i've always said you know open borders are inhumane borders the biden administration for months has been basically completing this trafficking line of you know, the cartels getting these people to the border, into Texas, into Arizona, into New Mexico. And then the Biden administration, through Homeland Security, puts them on a plane, gets them to their destination. Um, you know, they're, they're doing this with children and sending them off with sponsors. Based on my reporting that I did under the Obama administration when they were doing the same thing. Yeah, but the uh, thing is, that's all good, Katie. That's all good. But when Republicans do it, it's pawns. You're basically kidnapping these poor people right. and, and sending them off to you're the horrible, them. horrible nightmare of Martha's Vineyard. Well, when they say you're enticing them, you're tricking them onto planes and buses to Martha's Vineyard and then you know into Washington, D.C. And then these guys get off the bus and reporters like Griff Jenkins ask him, why are you here? Is the border open? 
did anybody force you to get on the bus? And they say, no, I voluntarily got on the bus. Yeah. I signed a waiver. There yep. was water and food the whole way. I was able to choose where I wanted to go. And now I'm here and the border's open because we were able to come and stay. I mean, oh, it's just, just the cruelty, just, the cruelty of Greg Abbott. It, it, I'm, so I'm cool. almost at a loss for words. And by the way, CNN was also interviewing these illegal immigrants, and they were saying the same things. Oh, no, well, you know, no one coerced us. That's another just made-up yeah. thing in this whole phony outrage that I think they're, they're just kind of creating this din of anger and all convincing each other that they should all be indignant and angry when yeah. if you actually get to the core of what they're angry about, it's their own fault. And they seem to know it. Yeah. And, and like you just dig slightly beneath the surface and they're, they just have nothing. In fact, let me tell you how little they have. I won't even use my own words. I will go back to the White House press secretary. She was asked again, challenged on, and this was a good follow-up, on the border is secure lie that they keep telling. <laughs> the DHS secretary says it. The White House says it. The vice president said it on Sunday. Listen to this beautiful articulation of how the border is secure. Uh, I just brace yourself for the eloquence. Cut 40. Does the White House stand by those comments that the border is secure? What we stand by is that we are doing everything that we can uh, to make sure that um, uh, that we follow the process that's been put forth. That, that's why we have uh, historic funding uh, to do just that, to make sure that, um, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, to make sure that, um, to make sure that, uh, the folks that we encounter at the border be removed uh, or expelled. Whoa, I'm not edited. That is that was her answer to that question. And she eventually came around to talking about what they're doing is removing and expelling illegal immigrants, except that is absolutely not their policy for millions right. of these folks. Well, and this is the thing. They can change this problem. They can acknowledge that it's a crisis. They mm -hmm. continue to say the border is secure. Secretary Mayorkas continues to say this. He's in, in charge of DHS. They can change this, but that would require them to ad admit that their, their policies have failed and to go back to policies that, oh, no, the evil Donald Trump put into place that actually did secure the border and prevent a humanitarian crisis like we're seeing on the border now. That's what they can do. They keep throwing their hands up and acting like, you know, the system's been decimated. We're just rebuilding the system. No, they have destroyed the system. They have yeah, they decimated it. Every single level, whether it's whether it's immigration judges with people trying to get in line, whether it's people overwhelming the Border Patrol with, with families or, or individuals, so then the drugs get to be moved across the border without any kind of stopping them at all. I mean, every single part of the system is, is collapsing. I mean, in El Paso just this week, um, which is a place that has a wall and it's overwhelmed because people can just walk right in and turn themselves in and then they get released. Um, they've released thousands of people onto the streets in El Paso because the processing center is completely full. It's almost like the idea that if you had a leak in your roof, you put out a bucket and then another leak starts and you put out a bucket and you continue to put out buckets instead of just fixing the leak in the roof. They can do that and they're not doing it. Yeah. And they're blaming Republicans for the rain. It, I mean, it just is totally incoherent. Before we move on to another topic, though, Katie, I've already played it, but I want to play it again. Honestly, I just want to. Even if people already heard it, maybe they miss it. Maybe they're just tuning in. You referenced it. This is the mashup back to back. Kamala Harris, the vice president, the border czar of the United States on Sunday, saying the border is secure. And then Griff Jenkins 
talking to one of the illegal immigrants who was bussed by Greg Abbott to the vice presidential mansion today. I mean, it, it just really does speak for itself. Cut 14. We're going to have two million people cross this border for the first time ever. You're confident this border is secure. We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. And Vice President Harris uh, said that the border is closed. Is the border closed? Do you believe that the border is closed or is it open? It's open, not closed. The border is open. The border is open. Do you believe that all the migrants believe that the border is open? Yeah, everybody believes that the border is open. It's open because we enter. We come in free. It's open because we entered. I mean, it's it's sort of like QED. Uh, that's in their own words and really good job of our and by our townhall.com social media team to just put those two clips back to back. I know they can say all they want and, and see through their teeth and have, you know, smoke coming out of their ears. They're so angry at Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott. But I think it's projection. The anger is self-directed. Yeah. It should be. They've done this. Katie, I'll give you the last word on that. Then one other quick topic before we go. Yeah. Yeah. It just is telling because she clearly thinks she's saying it's a priority right ahead of the midterm elections. It's, it's a top topic for people who are planning to vote. They they're feeling the pressure. They know it's an issue, but they just refuse to acknowledge it or change their policy. So it will continue. Yeah. So look, <laughs> A rough day at the White House on immigration as they try to explain this, and they've got they're, – they're not setting their best when it comes to uh, their spokespeople. Although, again, you could have the smoothest talking person in the world. On substance, there isn't anything good to offer here. I think it's, it's fair to make that point. And then just a few days ago, I mean, I, I don't want to lose track of this or move on too quickly from uh, the celebration at the White House on inflation. <laughs> on the day that the inflation numbers were just awful – I still am not over that, Katie, that that was planned yeah. and executed that day of all days. It's remarkable. Well, and it's not like they don't know when these numbers are coming out. There's there's a schedule for when the inflation numbers come out. Uh, and this idea that they are now touting that because inflation is sitting at 8.3 percent, that that is somehow a success when Americans are paying $1,000 on average per family per month more than they were even a year ago, that's $12,000 a year. That is completely unaffordable for most people in this country. And yet you have the president there with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer smiling and laughing about, and they're, they're really celebrating inflation. They said the inflation, the core inflation went up. Not, the Inflation Reduction Act causes inflation. And we're not even there yet with, with the inflation that that's going to cause. So they were at the White House celebrating inflation. Joe Biden, when the numbers came out, you know, said it was progress that was being made. Uh, it, it, they just don't seem to care. It's really remarkable. Katie Pavlich, editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. I'm I'm sort of in a daze this week. It just it feels <laughs> surreal what we're seeing. But yep. here we are. It is our reality and we'll cover it as best we can. Katie, always enjoy it. Talk soon. Thanks, Guy. Talk to you soon. We'll be right back after this on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. I see that the mayor of New York City was out partying with Anna Wintour and Serena Williams in the wee hours at New York Fashion Week just a short while after complaining and warning 
that his city is, quote, at a breaking point over these illegal migrants who have been bused there from New York City. It's a breaking point, folks. Now, got to run. Off to my party. That guy. By the way, I did see a clip of one of the officials in Martha's Vineyard saying we can't handle 50 migrants. We can't have them here. We don't have room for them. We don't have housing for them. Uh, we, we don't have the resources to do this. And, and I've seen a number of conservatives just openly mocking this mentality, using the left's own stupid slogans against them. Right here you have a white progressive talking about how, well, you know, we're, they're not going to welcome these uh, brown people, right, this is how they would describe it, to their little elite enclave, uh, shouldn't we be asking the officials in Martha's Vineyard, is this who we are? Hand claps. This is not who we are. Xenophobia on full display. Right, this is how they argue about everything. Corinne Jean-Pierre actually said today at the White House that the migrants deserve better than to be dropped in Martha's Vineyard. I can think of a lot worse. (laughs) And I think what they actually want is for these illegal immigrants to stay in, like, Del Rio, Texas. They deserve a lot better than Martha's Vineyard. They deserve a lot better than New York City. They deserve a lot better than Chicago or Washington, D.C. What they deserve in the Democrats' minds is Brownsville, right? What they deserve is McAllen. What they deserve is Del Rio. What they deserve is Yuma or El Paso. That's what they deserve. Stay down there. We're for all this stuff. We're very, very compassionate. We love all humans and no human is illegal. But for the love of God, don't bring them here. Absolutely not. You racist, vile, authoritarian, cruelty-imposing Republicans... It's so obvious, and it's pathetic. Another Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show from Los Angeles today. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website right there. Our podcast is free and on demand every day. As we enter our middle hour, a Fox News alert to get us going here. The Dow closing down 173 points, ending the day at 30,962. So more points shed off of the Dow Jones Industrial Average at the tail end of a week that has been pretty rough in terms of inflation and some of the data coming in, I just saw some projections on GDP that were not looking good at all. So the markets, again, seeming to be fairly spooked. Joining us now is Ted Budd, a congressman from North Carolina, a Republican, who is the GOP nominee for U.S. Senate in that state and a big election coming up in November there against his liberal opponent. Congressman, good to have you back. Yeah, great to be with you. We've been basically for the whole show so far talking about this illegal immigration story because progressives and Democrats and media elites keep talking about it. They're very angry. They don't talk about the border crisis ever, except when they can be angry 
and rage at Republicans. And they're very upset that Governor Abbott in Texas, Governor DeSantis in Florida, are sending some of these migrants into blue communities, blue cities. Uh, Most recently, Martha's Vineyard, uh, 50 migrants showing up there from Florida. I just saw this minutes ago. The governor of California, Gavin Newsom, uh, calls all of this very cruel, and he has sent a letter to the Department of Justice demanding an immediate formal investigation into the governors for these policies, for shipping the migrants to blue states, blue cities. Um, I I wonder what exactly the governor wants to see here. Obviously not uh, a rule of law consistent position, at least, because they're not for it on immigration, but I guess they want the DOJ to investigate Republicans for highlighting this problem. Seems to me like Gavin Newsom could maybe solve the whole thing by saying, you know what, we'll take all of them in California. We're very generous out here. We're very compassionate. We can't leave it to these cruel, inhumane people in Texas and Florida to send these immigrants elsewhere. Let's take all of them. That seems like the solution. And, And weirdly, I don't see that offer from Governor Newsom. Interesting. He's in the state that decided to build a wall near San Diego. And when they did, it uh, illegal immigrations and illegal crossings fell by over 90 percent. So he knows in his own state the success of actually building a wall. Uh, and if he'd only followed uh, in the rest of the border, it had followed that advice, then uh, that would solve the majority of this issue. Now, we need to support law enforcement. We need to support our border patrol. We need more agents. We need more technology. But that's a large part of it. And that is, you know, sheriffs are coming up to me, Guy, in all the, the counties around North Carolina, and they are saying every single county in North Carolina. I mean, we're 1,500 miles from the border. But they're saying every single county is now a border county because of Joe Biden's policies. And they just want an administration that has their back. And they don't have that right now. Yeah, well, not only that, Congressman, they don't want the actual problem to be solved. They just and I'm speaking of the Democrats, the activists, a lot of these journalists, they don't seem to care at all about the border crisis. They say nothing about it ever. But what they don't want is for the consequences of that crisis to be dropped too close to them. And they feel like the Republicans are the bad guys in this calculation, in this proposition. I feel like that calculus might not be working out exactly the way that they think it might, if they've thought through any of this very hard at all. Well, we're 54 days out from the election. uh, And this is ideology versus ideology. Those who believe in the greatness of this country, we're not saying perfection, but we're saying the greatness of this country and want to make it even greater for everyone out there. And those who believe that it is systemically flawed, systemically racist, and they want to um, break it and rebuild it in their own image. And that's what the left and the progressives want to do. This is not liberalism anymore. Heck, we would take some liberalists, but they have all just moved off the right, off the, they've just gone completely uh, left field. And uh, this is full-blown progressivism, socialism, and uh, they want to break this country. And that's what they're doing by letting over 3.2 million illegal immigrants that just in this fiscal year that have been apprehended, those are just ones that we caught at the southern border. And we know that there's over a half million gotaways. That's the one we know of, an unlimited number of unknown gotaways. And over 60 of those have been on the terrorist watch list. So it's, it's, it's devastating what they've done. I've seen it. I've been there. I've witnessed it multiple times. And we just need to have law enforcement's back, let them do what they need to do, and build the wall give them the technology they need and give them the staffing that they need and not be opposed to them like is the Biden administration. Yeah. And what a statement that a congressman from North Carolina has been to the border 
many more times, which would be like, you know, like once or twice than the president of the United States, who's been presiding over all of this with his policies. Uh, I think it, it speaks volumes about all of this. Meanwhile, we'll stick with the White House and some of what they've decided to do, Congressman, just in the last week. Today, a lot of the focus is on immigration, but the story of the week is inflation. The horrible inflation report coming out, stunning even some left-leaning economists and Democratic-aligned economists saying this is much worse than we were expecting, inflation going up, core inflation up, expectations missed, red flags flapping all over the place. And that report, those numbers came out, what was it, Wednesday morning or Tuesday morning? And within hours at the White House, they had a big old celebration about the reduction of inflation that they say this giant spending bill that they passed is going to achieve, even though the data shows that that will not happen. I'm still sort of flabbergasted, Congressman, that they did that. And yet they did. I feel like that that has to feel, even though it's very painful for American families, politically kind of feels like a gift to critics of this administration. We just need to make sure that people are are fully awake when they they go and they vote here soon. They're already sending out absentee ballots. But we're 54 days out. And let's get back to the root of what inflation really is. It's too much money chasing too few goods. Inevitably, that leads to inflation. So we know that if we stop this government runaway overspending, which really started in April of 2021 with the so-called ARP, or American Rescue Plan Act, that was trillions of dollars pumped into the economy. It was unnecessary. We had already done what we needed to do with the CARES Act earlier on, and this was really a bridge too far. Uh, We need to stop spending. We need to stop overregulating, and we need to start American energy production, and we need to start encouraging work. We need to get folks back into the workforce. Retirees, if they want to go back in of their own volition, we need to let them back in without penalizing them on Social Security. We need to make sure that young people aren't on the dole and able-bodied people are fully, uh, who are fully capable of working are in the workforce. We do those things. We'll encourage production. We'll stop overspending. We can fix this infl- inflation. We know what to do, Guy. Congressman, I've seen a couple polls recently that have you slightly ahead. It's a very close race down in North Carolina, as it often is these days. And you and your opponent have a debate scheduled coming up. Talk about first sort of the state of the race as it stands now. And then what are you going to try to accomplish and achieve at this debate? Because I think there's a lot about your opponent that I'd imagine you probably want to highlight for voters. Well, as uh, a One person that's been in politics way longer than me once said, you know, I'll stop telling the truth about you if you'll stop lying about me. So all we need to do is just tell the truth about what she's done. She's defended cop killers. She's done fundraisers with the leader of the defund the police movement. She's thrown out indictments for sex offenders, and the list goes on and on and on. She tries to run like a moderate. She tries to run away from Joe Biden. She tries to run away from Kamala Harris. Won't even come to see them when they're in the state. But we know that her policies are an absolute rubber stamp for Joe Biden. So all we need to do is just speak the truth. The issues are on our side. People are tired of inflation. They're they're disheartened by it. Uh, they're tired of the crime in their communities, the spikes in illegal drug trafficking, human trafficking, local crime. Uh, and and their parents want a say in their kids' education. And we want to give parents the educational freedoms that they deserve. Yeah, I think those last two points that you made, crime and education, I've been making the case here on the show, they cannot get short shrift. Crime and education, I think, were 
primary drivers of the progress that was made in New Jersey and especially in Virginia last year. And I understand it'd be crazy not to talk about inflation all the time uh, and, and some of these other big issues like the border. But crime is something that people are absolutely worried about across the country. And education is a resonant issue, especially with parents. And I feel like a broken record, but I'll be saying it until November 8th. This is the first national election that we are going to have since the Democrats shut down the country and locked kids out of schools where they had control in places like the West Coast and Illinois and Philadelphia and those types of places. There has not really been a national referendum. There's been no accountability for the people who made these devastating decisions that has harmed kids so badly. That reckoning can only come really in the form of an election, I feel like, in November just keeping that front and center, education for parents and crime just for, for citizens in general, law-abiding people who are worried about it, it seems like those should both be advantages for you, certainly over your opponent based on her record. Well, we're not going to rest on any laurels or any positive polls. This is the NASCAR state, and you don't win by lifting in the corner. You don't let off the gas. So we're going to stay uh, at it. We're going to humbly ask for people's vote. Uh, we need all Republicans, and uh, we need the moderates, and we need everybody out there to uh, to come and support uh, because everything that I do makes life better for North Carolinians. And so we are going to we're going to be out there. We went to all 100 counties. We're traveling back and forth across the state asking for people's support and their prayers. And those are the things that are going to get us across the finish line here in 54 days. I do want to ask you just taking a step back and you you mentioned the polling. I did, too. You don't want to put too much stock into any of that. Right. You want to run hard and sprint through the tape. And you made the, the NASCAR analogy. That being said, as you're talking to voters and you're getting a sense of the mood of the electorate, I know the Democrats feel like they've made progress over the summer. They're highlighting certain issues. What is your sense politically of the way things are shaping up right now, now that we're really getting close to the home stretch of the election? Well, there's been talk for months about the red wave, and it seems like the press was just reporting on what was going to be a red wave. And then they realized, oh, they have to be complicit with supporting the left. So they got in there and they started creating many false narratives and they started uh, trying to fracture Republicans, which I'm not actually seeing in real life. And, uh, you know, they started uh, helping their Democrats, um, uh, siding with them. So look, what we need to do is we need to go and we need to work hard. And rather than just watching a red wave and this uh, assumed passivity, we need to get out there and make it. We need to make the case for why we make neighborhoods better, why we make neighborhoods safer. We give parents the freedom that they deserve, why we deal with things that will lower inflation and make life better, not just for North Carolinians where I am, but also for people across this whole country. And I think that uh, local elections, um, ju judicial elections, I think there's going to be a major referendum, but we have to get out there and earn it, not sit back and watch it. Lastly, there's been a lot of chatter about fundraising and how Democrats have been bringing in money hand over fist, outspending Republicans in a lot of races around the country. I know Senator McConnell and his PAC has come in with a lot of cash to try to help out some of these races. How are things going in your contest? And, you know, are the Democrats really trying to press their fundraising advantage? We have about a minute left, Congressman. 
They really do. Uh, look, we don't have to have more. We just have to have enough to tell our message. And our message wins across North Carolina because it makes life better. Uh, they can try to run away from Joe Biden, but the truth is that everything that Sherry Beasley does is a rubber stamp for Joe Biden. If you want to help me out, it's at tedbud.com. It's just my name. I look forward to earning people's support. That's Bud with two Ds. Ted Bud. Congressman in North Carolina 13 right now, but he's looking for uh, a new title and maybe a bit of a promotion statewide to the U.S. Senate representing North Carolina. And uh, we'll see what happens November 8th. Congressman, always great to talk to you, and we'll have you back. You too, guy. Thanks. Ted Budd here on The Guy Benson Show. When we come back, I want to return to a blue city and a blue city mayor and what's happening in that town. We'll explain right after this break. Don't go anywhere. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson from Los Angeles. It's the Guy Benson Show. Here's a story in the Wall Street Journal. Headline, McDonald's CEO raises crime concerns for business in Chicago. Chris Kempzinski says the burger chain will keep its headquarters in the city but says government and business leaders need to do more to address safety. He says the burger giant grappling with violent crime, homelessness, and drug overdoses in its Chicago restaurants, calling on city and business leaders to find ways to address the problem. Quote, everywhere I go, I'm confronted by the same question. What's going on in Chicago? He said, there's a general sense out there that our city is in crisis. A spokesman for Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot declined to comment for the story, by the way. Mr. Kempzinski says McDonald's intends to stay in Chicago, and the company announced Wednesday that it will create new innovation centers in its city headquarters. So they're sticking around for now, unlike a bunch of other businesses who are leaving Illinois for all sorts of reasons. But restaurants and retailers have described violent crime in their stores as a growing problem. In the United States, a number of major companies, including Boeing, Citadel LLC and others, have announced this year that they will move their headquarters out of Chicago. The McDonald's CEO said big companies departures from the city should not be overlooked by government officials. Data from Chicago police showed that from the start of the year through September 11th, murders are down 15 percent when compared with the same period a year earlier. But thefts are up 65 percent. Crime overall up 38% from last year's period, according to CPD, and 19% higher compared with the same stretch in 2019 before the pandemic. McDonald's CEO saying, quote, we see every single day in our restaurants what's happening in society at large. It's not going to be something that McDonald's can solve on its own. This is really sounding quite similar to what the Starbucks CEO said. When he announced the closure of, what, more than a dozen stores around the country in blue cities riddled by crime, including the Starbucks location in Union Station in Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. So for right now, McDonald's is staying in Chicago, although CEO is saying it's harder to get people to come into work. People are very worried about safety and crime. I think it is... Very telling and appropriate that Lori Lightfoot's office couldn't be bothered to comment for this story. They're probably too busy 
what, firing off their next press release calling Greg Abbott a bad Christian for sending a handful of illegal immigrants up to Chicago, and then, by the way, immediately putting them on buses and shipping them out to more conservative suburbs, unannounced. That's what the city of Chicago has done in response to this. The sanctuary city. They're so proud that they're a sanctuary city that they go crazy when governors from the border give them a tiny taste of what's happening at the border, and then they take those illegal migrants to whom they've basically promised sanctuary, at least with their words, and they've sent them away to other places which, based on Lori Lightfoot's own standards, is a racist, anti-Christian thing to do, but now she's doing it. Isn't that interesting? As we talked about in the last hour, it's just a lot of incoherence from these people having conniption fits when they are confronted with some of the actual consequences for their stated policy positions. But as for McDonald's, it appears that the CEO is... Willing to stick around for now, keep operations in that city, but he's very concerned, and a lot of what he's seeing is worrisome to him. You might say that he's not loving it in Chicago. I'll see myself out, and we'll be right back. Halfway through the show... It's the Guy Benson Show from L.A. on this Thursday. Thank you for joining us. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website for lots of content and information and the free podcast every day. Well, last night on Jesse Waters' primetime on Fox News Channel, some fireworks between the host, Jesse Waters, and Senator Lindsey Graham over an issue that we talked about here yesterday just a little bit, which is the 15-week abortion restriction and limitation bill that Graham introduced earlier in the week. And... Jesse Waters was not pleased with the tactics or the timing on this. Senator Graham defending his position. Here is part of what that back and forth sounded like last night in Cut 19. We could have shoved this down their throat on the day the Americans got hammered with this inflation number and the market crashing. And now all the media and the Democrats are talking about federal abortion ban, federal abortion ban. You know, that's not smart politics, right? They're lying. Here's what I would say. I know, uh, everybody knows inflation's out of control. This is the most extreme agenda for the American people on the border when it comes to crime. And let me just say this. It is now time for the pro-life community to lend their voice to the most extreme measures being pushed by the Democratic Party. We should have done it yesterday. We should have done it the day before. But from this day forward, I promise you to prosecute the case against their border policies, against their economic policies, against their foreign policy. But I will not make any apology to you or anybody else for standing up (laughs) against the most radical agenda. I'm not asking for an apology. I'm just saying you're, you're getting a lot of heat. For the timing well, I of that. I can stand the heat. I know, yeah. but I the wedge issue it. is partial birth abortion. It, the the wedge can, issue is partial birth. That's what well, it is. You know All what right? the issue is? That most Americans would be disgusted with the policy that allows the dismemberment of a baby at 15 weeks. The people are with me. And if I'm not willing to talk up now... If not now, when? If not me, who? So I agree with you on the uh, the economic policies, but my friend, right. the pro-life community needs to speak up, and we will, and we will win this issue because right. we're right. All right, so that was the back and forth, and some pointed questions there from Waters. You know, they didn't blow up at each other, obviously, but they were underscoring the disagreement on the right about what was done this week. 
and the rolling out of this measure and what it entails and was it a smart political play, all things considered, because as Waters is saying, like, look, they're having this huge problem on the Democratic side with inflation. They've scored an own goal with their inflation celebration at the White House on the day of the horrible numbers coming out. Why give them the abortion issue to talk about when they're self-destructing on the number one issue in the country? I get that. That makes sense to me. I think it's a fair question to ask. On the other hand, and we've talked about this a little bit here on the show, the Democrats, the New York Times reported about this, the Democrats are outspending Republicans by a massive margin, orders of magnitude, on the issue of abortion. And the way that the Democrats are framing it is, oh, the Republicans want to ban all abortions and throw women in prison. I think these are distortions. I think that they are being misleading and demagogic, but they've got an issue. They want to fire up their base. They want to peel off moderates and independents. This is how they're trying to do it in a lot of these races. And Republicans should not just sit there and hope that the issue goes away. Because of the Dobbs decision, this is now a live issue in our politics. And just hoping that the Democrats are going to tell the truth about abortion and just that voters won't care or you at least don't have to counter-program and push back, I think that is very naive. I think it's what some Republicans have been doing. What we have discussed, what we have attempted to do here at least, is to highlight the profound, sometimes stomach-turning extremism of the Democratic Party these days on this issue and turning that discussion around to let people recognize how far out of step the Democrats are on this question. If the Democrats get to define the abortion debate as we are the party against blanket abortion bans and they are the party of blanket abortion bans, that will be a loser for Republicans. Now, there's a wide array of opinions on the right about what the appropriate abortion policy balance should look like between state and federal, between exceptions or not, you know, weeks of gestation, all of this stuff. You can get probably 10 people in a room who consider themselves pro-life, and you might have eight or 10 different opinions on exactly what the ideal policy would look like. But I think one area where most, not just pro-life people, but most Americans agree, based on polling, is that at some point in a pregnancy, an embryo becomes a fetus, becomes a human life worthy of legal protection. There are some people who draw the line at conception, other people later, where the Democrats draw the line, and even then, in some cases, it's a hazy line, is birth, which is appalling. And that's not me making up their position or attributing a false position to them. That is what every Democrat in Congress, except for two, Joe Manchin and Henry Cuellar, those are the only two I can name them here. I know both of them, not personally, but I know that's how they voted because all the other ones, 99% of congressional Democrats, just recently, in recent months, have voted on the record or supported an abortion legislation package that would have made abortion legal on demand for elective abortions for any reason through birth paid for by tax dollars. That was their bill. They didn't have to write the bill that way. They didn't have to vote on that bill, but that's what they did. So that is their position. In order to contrast that with what many mainstream Republicans actually want or are willing to do, or at least a place where I think there's broad agreement, which is the 15-week restriction, I think you have to put something on the table and make the Democrats attack it 
and force them to confront their own extremism and radicalism. Right? If they're the ones dictating the terms of the fight and they're the ones framing the issue the way they want it to be framed, it will be dishonest and bad politics for the Republicans. So sitting around twiddling thumbs, I think, is a huge error, whether you agree completely with every element of Lindsey Graham's bill, which I think is a pretty good bill, actually. I think it's sensible. I think it's humane. Those are some of the words that the National Review editorial used endorsing it yesterday. I agree. Whether or not you agree with every single jot and tittle, whether you agree with the timing or the context, I think the bill itself is good. Based on public opinion data, we know that it is mainstream, squarely mainstream, and popular. A majority of Americans, a majority of American women believe 15 weeks into a pregnancy, elective abortions on demand that people aren't for that anymore. In fact, 15 weeks would still be more permissive than a lot of other Western countries around the world and Europe and elsewhere, including the French. It would still be a more progressive, quote unquote, or liberal or permissive law than the French law of 15 week ban, with some exceptions that are built into the bill. And the Democrats, of course, are saying, well, this is a federal abortion ban. No, it's 15 weeks. And if you're against it, please explain why. And then they really don't love talking about that, especially some of these purple or red state Democrats. They don't want to have to answer those questions. They want to be able to spout a couple talking points, spit out this, I I would say, false dichotomy, and then reap electoral benefit. That's their game plan. And to disrupt that, I'm not saying that this should be the number one issue in the country. I think it would be crazy to ignore all this other stuff that's driving voters. But a lot of people care about abortion on both sides of the issue. And to just walk away from the fight makes absolutely no sense to me. And instead, getting behind a bill that has majority support, if you look at the polling, only between like 5 and 20% of the public actually agrees with the Democrats' extreme position on abortion. Whereas a majority supports what Lindsey Graham has put out. I would much rather be having that debate and that political fight than the abortion discussion that's happening right now, which is basically a whole bunch of attacks from the left and crickets broadly, not entirely, but broadly speaking, crickets on the right and among Republicans. I think that's wrong ethically. I think that's wrong morally. I think it's wrong politically. So I'm sympathetic to the points that Senator Graham is making. And if you don't believe me at how the Democrats are treating this, here's Chuck Schumer talking about how the Republicans are just, you know, a, a blanket abortion ban party. Here he was, cut 21. Months after women had their freedom of choice taken away by the MAGA Supreme Court, a nationwide abortion ban was actually their attempt to seem more mainstream. People will know the Republican view. Abolish abortion everywhere. I mean, that is very much up for dispute and under debate within the Republican Party, where Mitch McConnell and a number of Senate Republicans don't even want to go Lindsey Graham's route, which is a far cry from what Schumer's saying, which is fear tactics and a very convenient deflection for him and the Democrats away from their own position, while he's, by the way, undermining the legitimacy of an institution, the MAGA Supreme Court. Ridiculous. This is the guy who threatened justices by name on the steps of the Supreme Court. Oh, yes, the norms and institutions crowd. Give me a break. Speaker Pelosi, meanwhile, got very snarky and snide at a press conference yesterday where she made a joke, and I guess some of the journalists chuckled along because they're all on the same page on abortion. Here she is mocking 
the conservative pro-life position in Cut 25. There is a conflict within the Republican Party. There are those in the party that think life begins at the candlelight dinner the night before. And, 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 and these people are, are in defiance of that, right? They're in defiance of that because they're saying whatever they're saying about it. So that's, that's what you're seeing there. But we are united in our support for women's right to choose. Now, unfortunately, Democrats are united with very few exceptions on abortion on demand, elective abortion on demand for nine months, no exceptions paid for by taxpayers. That's their position. It is opposed by 80 plus percent of the public, but that's their position. They're for it. Most journalists are for it. The abortion lobby is for it. And they just count on not really getting called on it or being pushed on it. And it's funny, whenever conservatives accurately state the Democrats' official position these days, they're often accused of lying or distorting. Like, that couldn't possibly be true. Stop the smears. It's in their own bill. So here's Pelosi saying, oh, these Republicans, they believe that life begins at the candlelight dinner the night before. And then she paused for laughter. She got some. She's ridiculing the life beginning at conception position, which I would just simply quickly point out is actually the position of her own church. Now, the views and stances of any religious organization does not impact and should not dictate U.S. policy. But I bring it up only because Pelosi loves whenever she has the opportunity to talk about how very Catholic she is, supposedly. Except on abortion, where she is in egregious, aggressive, defiant violation of church teachings. So much so that she won't even condemn terrorist attacks against pro-life organizations. She won't do that. She is an absolute wild-eyed radical. And she loves talking about her faith sometimes. If you push her on this, she gets very, very offended. But here she is making fun of Americans who believe something, obviously in this sort of like very sarcastic way. No one believes what she actually said. This is her way of digging at the life beginning at conception position, which is what her church teaches. She might not agree with it on a policy level, but perhaps she can consider not mocking faithful Catholics and many others including atheists and unbelievers who believe that based on science and and other things. But that's her approach to this, sneering. She feels confident that her own position, she'll never really get asked about it. When she does, she really gets cranky. As I said, when there were terrorist attacks and firebombings of pro-life pregnancy centers that only want to help women choose not to have abortions, those groups are being targeted, threatened, and attacked. She would not say one word about the use of violence to intimidate those organizations. In fact, while that's happening, while the attacks are happening, you've got Democrats, including Elizabeth Warren and Catherine Cortez Masto out there in Nevada, trying to persecute those organizations, using the law through the political process as well, as we've seen out in California, here in California, as a matter of fact, for the crime that these organizations have committed of not being fanatically pro-abortion and trying to help women have other options. It's absolutely disgusting. That is what they actually believe, or at least the leadership does. And I'm not sure if Graham's bill ultimately advances the football or helps politically. I think it's better, as I said, than sitting there silently. And I think if you want to make a case on a common-sense mainstream abortion restriction that has broad support not just in this country but is mainstream around the world a 15-week line is like the bare minimum to me 
I'll leave you with this. Speaking of the science, at 15 weeks, and I'm quoting now from a pregnancy resource, your baby is looking more like a little person with eyelids, eyebrows, eyelashes, finger and toenails, hair, well-defined fingers and toes. If you could see inside your womb, you'd catch your baby sucking a thumb, yawning, stretching, and making faces. We know these things because of advanced technology now. That is not some meaningless clump of cells. That's a person. 15 weeks in, that's the reality. And the callousness that we hear from some people, unfortunately, not pro-choice people, and I think there's a fair debate here. I've, I've always said that. I think when you cross a line into pro-abortion, it gets pretty sick. And highlighting how awful that position is and educating voters, I think, is necessary to at least fight to a draw on this battle that Democrats are trying to win through misdirection, deflection, and dishonesty. And Lindsey Graham is at least trying to do something about it that I think could be productive and on the merits is worthwhile. That's my take. And The Guy Benson Show continues after this. The Guy Benson Show. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. So election denier Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor down in Georgia, with our listeners down there on Extra, she was on The View. And she was talking about a number of different issues. In fact, she was being lauded by one of the hosts for not conceding her election loss in 2018 because they celebrate that sort of thing on the left. It's good when they do it bad when the conservatives do it or the right-wingers do it. That's kind of the rule. And Abrams pushed back saying, well, I never denied that I lost, which is hilarious. But that's what she said on The View today. Never denied that she lost. She said what I was talking about when I said that we won It was that we won, quote, in terms of communities that were long left out of the electoral process, finally participating. Which is not at all what she meant at the time. It was very clear. Also, what she's describing is the opposite of voter suppression. Right. She said there was all this horrible voter suppression in 2018, but we won because of the turnout from people that never participated before. It's just incoherent. She's trying to justify what she said, which was election denial. And just remember it with me. Cut 37. I do have one very affirmative statement to make. We won. You refuse to concede and say that you lost. Do you stand by that decision today? Absolutely. The election was not fair. The process was not fair. Was the election in Georgia statewide a free and fair election? It was not a free and fair election. But will I say that this election was not tainted, was not a disinvestment and a disenfranchisement of thousands of voters? I will not say that. You uh, notably did not concede. I did not. Okay, you acknowledged that he won, but you did not concede. Correct. Five months later, do you still feel like your opponent won through voter suppression? Yes. Georgia voters did not have their votes counted. They were not allowed to cast votes. They had their votes discarded. It's very clear what she was saying and why she was saying it. She was lying. She lost. She won't admit it, and she won't be truthful about what she did back then, which wasn't that long ago. How about another big L for Stacey Abrams in November? Please and thank you. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Stay with us. 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour, our final hour here on this Thursday edition of The Guy Benson Show from the Los Angeles Bureau of Fox News today. Thank you for listening every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time, then around the clock for free on demand on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, for everything you need. GuyBensonShow.com, also FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter. That's also Instagram. Some good content there as well. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp, it is delicious, it is refreshing, and it is alcoholic. So 21 plus only, always drink responsibly. Find out more at thelongdrink.com where they're sold, their expanding map. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. Joining us now is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, a Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, and former Chief of Staff of the National Security Council in the Trump administration. His book is War by Other Means. General, always good to have you here. Hey, Guy, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be on with you. So we've spoken recently with General Keene about some of the changes on the ground in Ukraine. And since those conversations, the progress has only hastened for the Ukrainians in this counteroffensive. It has been remarkable to see what they have done just in the last week or so in the Kharkiv region, retaking more than a thousand square miles uh, of occupied or captured territory by the Russians, taking it back. What's going on here? Were the Russians caught off guard? Because it seems like the Ukrainians have really pushed hard and successfully. Yeah, and you know, all wars, guy, are, are ebb and flow, and I think one will flow with Ukrainians. But let me kind of put it in context for you. <clears throat> Remember, this is a war, and that was a single battle. It was a very important battle. Ukrainians did well. They got to Izum, uh, took a lot of territory, took a lot of you know equipment that the Russians had. But the Russians had thinned their lines. And what I mean by thinning their lines, they had moved a lot of forces out of that area. And the, the Ukrainians capitalized on that and were able to make uh, significant advances on that, which really um, hurt the Russians and you know, obviously caught them off of guard. But what's happened is a real fight, and this is what I tell everybody to look at closely. <clears throat> the culminating fight, the real fight for Ukraine against Russia, is going to be to the south. And what happened is the Russians used moved a lot of their what they call BTGs, battalion tactical groups, about 30 of them. That's about 25,000 troops, uh, which is a significant number of troops to the south, because they realized that the Ukrainian offensive around Kherson, uh, which protects uh, Odessa and the sea access is going to be critical because what the Ukrainians are doing, and I think it's very, very smart, and it's frankly something, Guy, I saw them doing the last two months, and a lot of people weren't paying attention to it because they're paying attention to the Donbass region. But if they can take retake Kherson and move, they can actually move and cut off Crimea. And, and just a month ago, Zelensky said this war began with Crimea. It will end with Crimea. Mm -hmm. He wants, doesn't want to give up any land. He plans on taking Crimea back. And if they can push that offensive forward with the depleted Russian forces, they get to the uh, they get to the Russian border. Then Crimea is in big trouble because they can actually make them capitulate. And if that happens, this is my prediction: if they were able to do that, the Russian army falls, and so does Putin. 
because they can't take that strategic loss, which would happen. So I, the real high is that not what happened up there near Kharkiv, which is important and, and is, a, is a real testament to their fighting ability and what they're trying to do. But look to the south, and this is a fight to me between the classic fight between a mongoose and a king cobra. You know, with the king cobra being Russia and the mongoose being uh, being Ukraine, with their, their their agility and their their ferociousness, and, and hopefully they can carry it off. Now, I think they can if they get what we've been telling them we're going to give them and haven't done in this administration, which is a massive amounts of things like MRS. Uh, high Mars, which gives them the long-range fires, because when we created that guy years ago, those systems, we called it a salt breaker, and that was designed to beat the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. We ought to be flooding the zone right now with weapons like that and actually and give the Ukrainians an ability to beat the Russians in Kherson, push towards Crimea, cut off the forces in Crimea, and, and actually cause the, the Russian army to fall, and that's what would happen. It's striking to see the difference in morale and sort of how both sides seem to be feeling. On one side, the Ukrainian side, President Zelensky visited that recaptured city that you just mentioned, Izum. He went there to make a point personally, uh, as I think, you know, a, a testament to his forces, the success that they had there. Also probably to twist the knife a little bit for the Russians, be like, you know, hey, not only do we retake the city, I'm now here to celebrate it. On the other side, we're starting to get more rumblings of discontent inside Russia. Some people now, analysts going on television and being critical of Putin and the war effort and saying, oh, gosh, it looks like we might be losing. This is not going well. And usually dissent is not something that you see very much of, to put it lightly, over on Russian state television. And I just wonder what you make of that juxtaposition and maybe some of the internal pressures that are starting to build for Putin amid what has been really an absolute disaster for them for months now. Yeah, you know, here's where the criticism is coming from, though, Guy, and it's important to notice. They're mad because Putin didn't go far enough. They're not mad because he's losing. They're mad because he's losing and he didn't show enough strength. For example, this is still a special military activity. Instead of calling up and uh, mobilizing the Russian people against him, and he hasn't done that. Cause it, to me, that will be a real sign if he's, he realizes he's got some... Obviously, much yeah, but wouldn't, wouldn't that be – I understand, like, these are even more hawkish nationalist crazies yeah. over there. But if they were to mobilize nationally, that I think would sort of puncture the propaganda story that they've been telling the Russian people. They'd have to bring in a bunch of unskilled, untrained people. I've seen top Russian officials. There's been photographs and videos of them at prisons trying to recruit inmates to come, you know, fight yeah. basically to maybe become, you know, free men at the other end of the thing. I mean, that reeks, at least to me, of – Pretty dire straits and, and desperation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, they are, to me, it's clear they're losing this fight, and they're losing it on a, a lot of different levels. But, uh, you know, I cannot think of a of a military that has performed so badly because they haven't been very, very smart uh, about how they fought, and they violated virtually every principle of war. And you're absolutely right. I mean, when, when you think about what they have done and what they haven't done, they've lost their frontline units, so now they're really scrambling to, to get other forces into play. The advantage to Ukraine on that, and Ukraine has suffered some significant losses as well. These troops are not well trained. They haven't fought together. But they're honestly, guy. When I looked at, I went back and kind of looked at it. When they looked at what Gerasimov wrote, and Gerasimov, the Russian four-star general, when one actually wrote their theory, actually 
de-aggregated their units. You don't see something like you saw in World War II with 6,000 tanks in the Battle of Kursk or something like that. They de-aggregated them to small units, so they can't really fight together exceptionally well. They don't do combined arms well. Now they've got a manning problem out there. They've probably lost if the estimates are correct, around 70,000 troops killed and wounded, that's one-third of the invasion force, and those were all frontline units. So they've got problems. So if, if now that Putin, if he mobilizes, you're right, there's a lot of people in Russia that would be going, what's going on? And I think what I would do if that happened and I was Putin, I'd bring in some food tasters and increase my bodyguards because there's other hardliners who are trying to get, going to try and get rid of them. I do want to ask you closer to home about a controversy I've been following a little bit the first piece of it is really weak military recruiting, one of the mm -hmm. worst years in memory in U.S. history for hitting the targets on recruits into the U.S. military. That's concerning unto itself, and I'm just wondering what you make of that, what's going on there. And then when you add on to it, there's this whole process of discharging service members who are already serving over a vaccine mandate on COVID, which seems – really like an anachronism and, and really out of date at this point, given what we know about the efficacy of the vaccines, at least in terms of preventing transmission, given the struggles, apparently, that the military is having right now to recruit new people, does it make sense to be booting existing members out of the services because of this vaccine question? I'm just wondering where you come down on this stuff. Yeah, I, I, and I'm with you on that, on about booting people out of the military, not only the Army, but the Marine Corps and the other services as well. Look, the, what the Army has done is the Army's broken itself, and that's the reason why you don't see people coming in and their recruitment levels are very low. They're getting about half the people they want because people are voting with their feet, and their feet are not moving towards a recruiting station, and they don't want to join. They see a military that is not conditioned or want to fight. The first thing that a military should do is figure out how it's going to win wars, and they're not doing that right now. And I really do blame military leadership and not all of it, but there are significant pieces of it, that have forgotten what their primary mission in life is, and that's to fight our nation's war. And and they're not doing it, and it's, you can see that in recruitment, just not the Army, but the Air Force as well. What are they doing then? If they're not prioritizing what seems to be the obvious job, you know, you hear some criticisms yeah. from conservatives that, you know, they're so focused on diversity and social justice and, and that kind of stuff, whether you kind of wokeness, whatever the term would be. I don't know if that's overblown or not, but if they're not focused on winning America's wars, which is the gig, and therefore recruitment is suffering, what what's the solution? Well, there's a solution if you you know you change your leadership, but that's not going to happen with the Biden administration. I mean, look, you know. I get this thing when they talk about diversity, but you want to have a, a, an organization that fights well. The, the Army over the years has done diversity very, very well. Now they're making it a, with the wokeness they've got. To, it's almost like it moves to the forefront. And it's almost like, look, you forgot what your main, main mission is. And that emanates from the Secretary of Defense all the way down because the military supports his civilian leadership. And you can see where the civilian leadership is going with it. And it's hurting the it hurting the, uh, the capability of the military. And what I mean by hurting the capability guy, people don't want to join. I mean, look, I'll be very honest with you. I would be hard-pressed for to me if somebody came to me, would, well, should my son or daughter join the military? I would be hard-pressed today to say yes. I'd say, I understand service to the nation very well. Got it. And I understand if we're in a crisis. I got it. But right now, putting somebody in the military, I said, you know, I, I'm not like I used to be, where I was a thousand percent behind it. I'm not too sure that, you know, that, that somebody going into the military today 
is getting the training or the experience that they should be getting, wow. and instead they're being politicized. And, and I hate wow. to say it. It doesn't make me feel very good, but no, it's actually a very shocking very thing. Well, what you're saying to yeah. me is shocking. If you, a retired lieutenant general, are saying you're not 100% sold on recommending that young people join the military right now, the U.S. military, I mean, I'm actually almost stunned by that. Well, that's where I mean, that's kind of where I'm at right now because it's when I look at what's happening, they're not decide, you know, they're not focused on fighting our nation's war. They talk about it, but they're talking all the wrong things. And that all goes back to the leadership and the primarily the civilian leadership. And it's one of those – I've got to be honest with you. I just couldn't – I couldn't tell people in a straight face, yeah, you've got to join the military. I think it's a great thing. It's a great you know, career builder, confidence builder. I don't see that anymore, Guy. And, and I think the only way that changes out, if you change out senior leadership, and some of it at uniform level, but a lot of it in the political level as well, and, and say, okay, this is really important. This, this is what we want our military to do. Your job is to fight and don't forget it. That's not what they say right off the top. They just don't. You said this emanates down from the defense secretary, maybe kicking it up one layer. And the commander-in-chief, right, ultimately the buck stops with him. Do you think this ultimately lands with him? Well, of course it does, because they take the lead off of him, and the Secretary of Defense takes the lead off the President of the United States and off the Vice President as well. But, there, you know, look, look, Guy, this is a – when I look at somebody like Joe Biden about building confidence and presidential decision-making and leadership really does matter. But this is the same guy that former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates, former director of the CIA under his administration, or Obama's administration, said Joe Biden's been wrong on nearly every national security decision in the last 40 years. And you see that happening right now. Look, I'll make a, I'll make a dramatic shift. If, well, let's just talk about his leadership and what's happening with Ukraine. Here he's got a nation fighting an existential fight for their lives, Ukraine. We're providing a lot of support to them, but yep. we're holding back support as well. I mean, we're not giving them all the kit they want. If they had all the kit they want, then maybe they could pull this thing off in a, in a near term. So it's almost like it, it's the way he thinks. It's his mindset. And his mindset is just to walk by the graveyard whistling and hope that nobody brings him to account. That also goes from foreign relations, national security, immigration, to his military. And you see that in the military and the way the soldiers are in the military. And look, I've got some pretty good insights on it because I know a significant number of people in the military, and I know what they're going through, and I know what the things they're focused in on. And I'm telling you what they are not focused in on. They are not focused in on war fighting. Mm. I mean, that is, I think, an extremely disturbing and damning indictment from someone in your position in particular. I'm glad that you said it. I think people need to pay attention and listen and consider the implications of what you're saying. I certainly will be uh, processing it here for a while. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg retired, a Fox News contributor now. He was chief of staff at the National Security Council under President Trump. His book is War by Other Means. General, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. And this final hour of today's Guy Benson show will resume after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. Happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. We're back. Thanks for being here. And this is a happy story. Very pleased to bring you this update. Yesterday, Wednesday, Fox News Media CEO Suzanne Scott was giving her quarterly address to the company. And she was talking about our colleague Benjamin Hall, who was injured badly in Ukraine six months ago. That attack killed one of our photojournalists, Pierre. I actually was standing by his desk at the London Bureau when I was there recently. And they had 
a little memorial for him there. It was very moving. And then, of course, Sasha as well, who was helping with the coverage. They were both killed in that attack. Ben survived, but with very serious injuries. And Suzanne Scott, our CEO, was talking about it and his road to recovery. And then she surprised everyone by saying, but really, who wants to wait for that, talking about a documentary down the line? She said, joining us now live from London is our very own Ben Hall. And folks were totally taken off guard by this. He got a huge, rousing standing ovation from the people who were there in person. And via satellite, here's what he said. Quote, I think back to the last six months, and if I kept talking, I'd be here all day. But there are a couple of things which I really want to point out to everyone, and this opportunity to talk to the whole company is something that I've been looking forward to because I want to give everyone an update on my progress, on how far I've come and what has happened in that short space of six months. But the fact is, is that six months ago, out in Ukraine, we suffered a terrible attack. I remember thinking that day when I was lying there, there was one thing I needed to do, and that was to get home, try somehow to get home and see my family. And what's happened from then to now with so much support, so much goodwill, so much help from everybody, I was helped by so many people, so many people at Fox News. And as I sit here, I think every single day, every day of the hard work that we all went through, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you to everyone who has got me through that. He thanked later on in these remarks the heroes who saved his life, getting him out of Ukraine, reunited with his family all the medical attention that he's gotten, and he ultimately concluded, quote, it is not a story, talking about his own ordeal, it is not a story really of tragedy, but one of goodwill. And I think that is just an incredibly inspiring and remarkable turn of events and a little flair for the dramatic, introducing him unexpectedly on this company-wide meeting and for him to give that update and to be in those spirits and to have that attitude is just amazing. I will tell you I've emailed a little bit back and forth with Ben over the last six months just wishing him our goodwill and our thoughts, our prayers, and his attitude at least over email and what we've heard here this week I think is so admirable. And here's to a great, speedy, and to the greatest extent possible, complete recovery for our friend and our colleague, Benjamin Hall. And with that, we will step aside and come right back. It is The Guy Benson Show from Los Angeles on this Thursday. Stay tuned. We are back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show from L.A. Earlier today in our first hour, we caught up with our friend and colleague from both townhall.com and Fox News, Katie Pavlich, on the news of the day. She was fired up. Here's part of my conversation with Katie. I just spent the first half hour talking about the migrant stuff and the absolute meltdown that we're seeing on the left. And I didn't even get to all of the material, so I hope that we can talk about it together. How does that sound? Uh, Sounds fantastic. Okay, so Corinne Jean-Pierre at the White House, and and I said this in the last segment, I, I don't love singling her out because she has a tough job. She is bad at it. I, I I don't know how else to put it. She is bad at the job. And part of that's her own uh, lack of talent in some ways. Some of it is just she is dealt a horrible hand that she has to try to defend. And she was attempting today and failing pretty miserably, asked about the border crisis and all of this stuff, because what the Democrats are, they're, they know they're very, very angry at Republicans. But when it comes to the underlying issues, 
They just don't have answers. So let's just listen, for example, to Cut 38. Let's start with Cut 38. This was just you know, a little while ago today. From the podium, take it away, KJP. So as we have said repeatedly, there is a, there's a process in place. Uh, we have had a process in place. There's a legal way of doing this. Um, and uh, for managing migrants, Republican governors interfering in that process and using migrants as political pawns is, uh, is shameful, is reckless, and just plain wrong. And remember, these are people who are fleeing communism, who are fleeing hardship. And if these governors truly care about uh, border security, they should ask Texas Governor Ted Cruz and Florida Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott why they voted against the president's request for record record funding for the Department of Homeland Security. The Department of Homeland Security is what she just called it, uh, while also talking about Senator, excuse me, Governor Ted Cruz. I guess he got a title <laughs> change there. Um, Remarkable. She says there's a process in place for dealing with the migrants. How is that process going, Katie? I think that's like the underlying, the fundamental point here. And then she's like, oh, they voted against Homeland Security funding. Uh, It wasn't going to security is the problem, I think. Well, also, it's amazing how they're trying to use these people are fleeing communism line, which shows you they're so desperate that they're now trying to use a Republican talking point against (laughs) Republicans. Um, It's not going well at all. I mean, two million people have crossed uh, over the past year and a half into this country as a result of Joe Biden's open border policies. Uh, You know, and it's interesting to watch, and I'm sure you've already said this, but, you know, Democrats have been voting for sanctuary cities for years. They have accused Republicans in the border states. They've accused border communities that have Democratic mayors of racism and xenophobia if they weren't willing to bear the brunt um, of this problem. I mean, I'm from Arizona. This is the same argument that I've been hearing my entire life about how, you know, places like Arizona have asked the federal government to reimburse them for illegal immigration, uh, and Democrats aren't you know, willing to do it because they think that it's a problem far away that they don't have to deal with. Now that it's come to Washington, D.C., now that it's at Martha's Vineyard, all of a the sudden they're saying it's inhumane, that it's wrong, that it's a political ploy, as if what they've been doing is not a political ploy. Uh, and they act like this is, this is some kind of new idea. The Biden administration for a year and a half has been flying illegal immigrants to communities mm-hmm. around the country in the middle of the night. The only difference is now that people like Governor Ron DeSantis and Governor Greg Abbott of Texas are flying people in the middle of the day to places like Martha's Vineyard and Washington, D.C., so the American people can see what's actually going on here. And the White House is having a fit about it. And and all of their excuses about how it's different because they're not using people as pawns (laughs) is absolutely amazing. And also just the sheer gall to say it is inhumane to send 50 illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard yeah. <laughs> when they have emboldened a trillion dollar smuggling cartel that is making more money off of human beings being moved across the border yep. than they are on drug smuggling is just so detached from reality and from the real humanity crisis that we've seen for a year and a half under this president, which is the worst in history, by the way. The yep. numbers never been this bad 
and then they stand up today and say the border's secure and a well, Republican and- on border funding. I mean, it just is so amazing. I mean, it's insulting. It bears no resemblance to what's actually happening. They take no accountability, no responsibility for what they've actually done, what their policies have wrought. And basically, it seems like for a lot of these people, their position is come on in, but don't come here. Stay down there. Right. And what right. also drives me crazy, and I've made this point a few this times is a already. Point, by the way. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> doing that I mean, for it's, political reasons. it's all about politics. It is completely political to them. And this actually, the point I was about to make, it, it, I think dovetails nicely, and I, I keep coming back to it because I think this is what bothers me the most. You and I were down, Katie, you and I were down at the border a couple months ago. We saw what was happening there with our own eyes. A lot of these yep. folks won't even go. They've been turning deliberately a blind eye to what's happening there. The crisis is worse than it has ever been. They deny it. They say the border is secure. They say that they're the compassionate, empathetic ones. They do not talk about the border at all except to sort of tacitly or explicitly approve what's happening down there and suggest that people who might be concerned about it are like racists or xenophobes but Mm -hmm. they have nothing to say about it ever until law enforcement officials are falsely accused of whipping migrants then all of a sudden they they pay some attention for like a few minutes and they get really mad then it goes away for another whatever nine ten months and then you have an opportunity to yell at greg abbott and Ron DeSantis, so now they're mad again. Now they're talking about it. They don't care at all about the crisis. They care about scoring political points. And to me, that's what's actually repulsive and vile in all these words that they keep using to describe the actions and policies of these Republican governors. Yeah, no, it, it's abhorrent and it's inhumane. And I've always said, you know, open borders are inhumane borders. The Biden administration for months has been basically completing this trafficking line of, you know, the cartels getting these people to the border, into Texas, into Arizona, into New Mexico. And then the Biden administration, through Homeland Security, puts them on a plane, gets them to their destination. Um, you know, they're, they're doing this with children and sending them off with sponsors. Based on my reporting that I did under the Obama administration when they were doing the same thing. Yeah, but the uh, thing is, that's all good, Katie. That's all good. But when Republicans do it, it's pawns. You're basically kidnapping these poor people right. and, and sending them off to you're the horrible, them. horrible nightmare of Martha's Vineyard. Well, when they say you're enticing them, you're tricking them onto planes and buses to Martha's Vineyard and then, you know, into Washington, D.C. And then these guys get off the bus and reporters like Griff Jenkins ask him, why are you here? Is the border open? Did anybody force you to get on the bus? And they say, no, I voluntarily got on the bus. (laughs) My full discussion with Katie Pavlich, our Fox News colleague, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Part of that free podcast every day, the whole show on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch, there has been some internal dissent and dissension within the ranks of the Guy Benson Show over the royals and the royal family in the wake of the Queen's death. I am basically ambivalent. Christine and Wyatt are not. We'll explain when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition from L.A. Thank you very much for being here with us. GuyBensonShow.com, that's our website. Podcast is always free. Well, we, of course, covered last week, Thursday and Friday, heavily the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And her funeral is coming up on Monday. 
The U.K. has been in mourning, lots of events all around the country in her honor. And it's been interesting to watch from afar. Americans, many of us, very interested in the story. I have not been following it as closely as I did last week. I'll probably pay some attention to the funeral on Monday. But one of these sources of controversy and topics of discussion is the royal family now that she's gone. I mean, unsurprisingly, this is something I think we all could have expected these conversations to start. The new king, King Charles III, he's getting some bad press about, I guess, demands that he makes of his aides and his staff and a couple little hot mic moments from him. And it's unclear how out of context or out of character some of this stuff is. I know he's getting positive reviews in other respects. I'm not here to render some sort of judgment on the early days of his reign. Uh, But I have seen some of those headlines and some of those clips. And then you go down a generation to William and Kate and then Harry and Meghan. And obviously a lot of attention is being paid to them. That dynamic, that relationship had already had a lot of eyeballs on it for all sorts of reasons through the years. And once again, Meghan Markle, Harry's wife, an American, is getting a lot of attention on social media, uh, sort of gossip columns. She's back in the mix after what a lot of Britons think was sort of like tearing Harry away from the family. Some Americans are on her side. It seems like she's gotten, for the most part, a chilly reception over there, but not entirely. And that's sort of my lay of the land from a very far distance. I have not been following the ins and outs of this. But producer Christine apparently has, and she has a, you might want to call it a hot take. She is a big cheerleader, pom-pom-waving fan of Meghan Markle. I'm just trying to figure out, Christine, why? I think she's getting a bad rep around here. I think that she loves Prince Harry. She was treated completely unfairly by the quote-unquote firm, as she said, to Oprah. And I think that, look at her now. She came back to support him. She's out there talking to the people, giving them hugs, you know, walking with William and Kate. And let's be honest, they weren't very nice to her. So I think that she's exactly what you would want in a princess. And I think people are really, really just crushing her and Harry for for no reason. And apparently I was telling Wyatt all this and... He seemed to think quite the opposite. Yeah, I'm, I'm finding myself not fully agreeing with what you're saying here. And I have to stipulate that as a Northwestern alumnus, Meghan Markle's also a Northwestern alum. And mm-hmm. so I've called on her to be the lifelong homecoming duchess for as long as she wants. Uh, but it also does kind of seem like her presence in that family hasn't been great. It seems like a little toxic at times. She's been perhaps a bit self-involved and annoying through certain trials and tribulations. I'm not saying there aren't two sides of the story. I guess I'm just not terribly inclined to be overly sympathetic to her and her role in all of this. And it sounds like Wyatt might agree with me. Wyatt, what was the basis of this conversation you had with Cookie? And how did you push back? Well, Guy, it was also mainly more about Princess Diana and how she was treated, because I think she was treated far worse by the press and by the family, and by and now by by now King, Your Majesty the King Charles, than than anything Meghan has has suffered. I think I, I watched a documentary the other day 
about Princess Diana and how she was treated. And I just think that she was a real victim. I don't think that Megan is necessarily a victim. I think she makes everything about herself. Yes. And like, this is the queen's funeral. I mean, it somehow, you know, she likes to make everything about herself. I think it's very nice that Harry and Meghan have went over and have, you know, put their differences aside with, with uh, William and and, uh, and Kate. But I think that she just some, somehow has a way to always make everything about herself. And Diana was not that way. And I think that she was treated much, much worse. Uh- <laughs> Christine, it sounds like you have something to say. You've got to be kidding me. Listen, I love me some Diana. I really do. But she made a lot of it about herself. She really, she really catered to the press. She really went out of her way. Remember the interview she did? Um, and here's the thing. You might be right that Diana obviously was more of a victim, but that's why Meghan and Harry left. That was the whole point. Harry did not want there to be a Diana 2.0 situation here, and that's the reason they left. If she stayed, who knows what would have happened? Mm. I guess I just find fundamentally the problem with Meghan Markle yeah, with the boring. Oprah interview and, and so much of what they've decided to do, setting aside their very obnoxious political preening and how they seem to get lots of money to do basically nothing at all and kind of the woke social justice stuff that they're espousing, I can just separate that out for a second. The fact that Meghan Markle is trying to play a victimhood card when she married into the British royal family – Knowing what that was, and she's sort of pretending, oh, I had no idea. She She should have known. She should have known if she was a conscientious person who had done any due diligence at all. I don't really believe her that she was totally caught off guard by all of this stuff. You know what you're getting into to some extent, and if you're not prepared to deal with some difficulty and scrutiny and all of that, that's on her. That's not on anyone else. Have you ever heard the term love is blind? I mean, she fell in love with Harry. I don't think she fell in love necessarily because he was oh. the prince. Oh, I'm sure. I was just a total coincidence. He just happened to be, you know, the prince over from the UK, from that family with all the attention and all that. It was just like a total uh, happy love story that had nothing to do with that. I mean, I'm not saying she doesn't love him. I'm saying I think it's naive to believe that she just thought this guy might be some some pauper. He, he's just, you know, a, an average lad over from the UK. And, oh, what a surprise. He's a prince. That's not how this went down. No, I, I don't think that. But I, I don't think she knew how controlled she was going to be uh, by the firm. Yeah, I think that's said. on her. That's on her. How would she know? How how would she possibly have known? Google. Unless you're going to – and that's how you're going to decide? Like, what if you fall in love with somebody and their their background, their life is different from yours? And so you're just going to walk away from that because you're not going to No, you like... figure it out and you decide, okay, if I'm going to be part of this, if I'm going to go all in knowing what this entails and what my responsibilities are going to be and so on and so forth, then you have to do research and homework and due diligence. And either she didn't do that, shame on her, or she did and she's being dishonest about it. Uh, and I don't think either one is a great look. I, I look. I'm not going to sit here and be <laughs> hardcore anti-Megan. I I don't know enough. I don't care enough. But I'm I'm just not totally terribly impressed with her in a number of different ways. And I have to admit that I am reaching the end point of my caring and things that I can even <laughs> possibly say uh, on this segment about any of this. Do you have a final word, Wyatt? 
I do actually. I do. Um, I think you know, just take a step back and look at Meghan Markle's role and, and all this and everything and think of what an opportunity it is to be married into that family and have the responsibility. I mean, they don't do much, the royal family. They don't have much power. <gasps> That's not true. But what they do is they do a lot of charity work. They do a lot of ribbon cuttings. They do a lot of trips around the world. I mean, she didn't, I guess, appreciate that value. I mean, I'm, if I could have that job, I think that's amazing just to go around and <laughs> sit around the world and go and, and help. They do help people. They do a lot of charity work. But she somehow just didn't see that as something that was worthy of her life or her time. And no. I don't know. Yeah, he wants, to be, he wants to be Wyatt Windsor. Or Windsor Wyatt. It's another nickname for him. Christine, all right, you, you get the last word very quickly because we're almost she out of time. And I'm out. She, she was no, trapped she, and no. she needed to get out. The end. Uh, I just trapped in all the palaces that she voluntarily married into. What a difficult situation. What a victim. We got to go. Back here tomorrow, back in D.C. for one show at least from the home base on the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show upcoming. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you then. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.